Welcome to the podcast series on sexual health for seniors with Dr. Sue and Bernie O'Brien. This podcast series is based on conversations with seniors about sexual health, sexual desire and related matters. In this session, we'll be discussing David. Welcome, Bernie. Thank you, Dr. Sue. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope that I can add something worthwhile to your discussion. I'm sure you will. Just to give a bit of background, uh, sexual desire in older age was a topic that I researched with the Queensland University of Technology some years ago. At the time, people who knew what I was researching advised me that older people wouldn't talk to me about sexuality, let alone their own experiences of sexual desire. At the time, I disagreed with them and would still disagree with them today, particularly since my experience of speaking with some older people about the topic has shown otherwise. That's what led to the collection of real-life narratives that form this podcast series. These were based on interviews that I undertook with older people. You are now with Dr. Sue and Bernie, and we're talking about sexual desire in older age. And more specifically, in this session, we'll hear David's story. David was 72 years of age, of stocky build with grey-white hair and a ruddy complexion. David was a pensioner who lived in his own home with his second wife, who was of non-English-speaking background. They'd been married for 30 years. Despite a history of significant health problems, David remained physically and intellectually active. He was involved in a sporting club and was also pursuing some study. David had recently experienced treatment for prostate cancer. In David's words... My wife and I reached the point where we had resolved ourselves that we don't need sex anymore. I lost the prostate totally. Now there's no semen. There's nothing to ejaculate. So if you haven't got either, there's nothing going to happen. Sexual desire is more a memory of times you used to have than actual current desire. As I keep telling people, don't worry about Viagra. There's no point in putting a brand new flagpole up on a condemned building I said to some friends, the wife and I have decided we're only going to have oral sex now. We're just going to talk about it. We aren't going to do anything, but it's awful because you don't feel like a man anymore. I can't tell you that. You adjust, but you still have a mental aspect to it. I can't fulfill. I feel inadequate. From the sexual point of view, you can virtually say that everything's just gone. I mean, that's basically it. If you haven't got a prostate, you haven't got any semen. And if you haven't got any semen, you haven't got any ejaculation. And if you haven't got that, you haven't got anything, have you? You remember the enjoyment that you used to have, but that's all. David's health problems began when he was about 63 years of age. At that time, he experienced his first heart attack and was also diagnosed with diabetes. David underwent a medical intervention that improved his health for the following two years. Then he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. David hoped for an operation to remove the prostate, but was advised that he was not a candidate for surgery, and he subsequently underwent seven weeks of radiation therapy. They said straight out, this is what you have to have. They did the treatment for prostate within a couple of weeks of finding out because they said it was urgent. Prior to his health problems, David's sexual desire was unaffected and intercourse was frequent, about three times a week, with David reporting that he had plenty of desire. However, because of the prostate cancer treatment, sexual desire was unable to be fulfilled. David could no longer achieve and sustain an erection, and he sought medical help. Even before I had the prostate treatment, diabetes knocked me down. So we had virtually, well, I had half what you would call desires. I had the diabetes and then the prostate. I spoke to my doctor about it. I said, I've got this impotency thing and mentally I'm going mad. I want to know what this story is. 
David's doctor investigated his problem. I had a lot of tests. The doctor gave me a test where they put the gel on you and it comes up on the screen. One like when you have a baby. And I had another test. They had me lay down and tested how much blood flow I had going past the testicles. And then the doctor came in and gave me an injection in the penis. And then they tested me again to see how much blood flow. But there was not enough blood flow. The doctor said you could have a bag thing that you pump up in the scrotum, but it was $2,000. That was to get it done cheap. It was about $15,000 if you wanted to get it done proper. The surgeon was allowed to have five of these a year. David and his wife discussed the implications of prostate cancer treatment. We reached the point where we decided that it didn't matter. Eventually, sexual desire becomes more a memory of times we used to have than actual desire. Mm, So, Bernie, what do you think about that? It's a bit of a sad story there with David, who was so sexually active before, and then he had all of these different health issues. What are your thoughts about that? I believe that David was fortunate in his ability to open up and discuss this with, firstly, his partner, Mm. secondly, his doctor, and then the surgeon. Mm. Bottling that up is not the right sort of an answer. That could lead to depression and despair and yes. all of the other things that go with that. So yes, I was quite surprised that he had that sort of a relationship with his wife. And that was the impression I got when I was talking to David. And I did meet his wife briefly, but there was that sharing that they shared everything. And I thought that was really lovely, actually. They were going through this together. It was a journey that they were on, but he wasn't facing it alone. I don't know how long they had been married, but I guess that's the nature of a long-term relationship, companionship, plus time Mm. to talk about sensitive things. Yeah, 30 years they'd been. Yeah, 30 years. Long enough. And that was a second marriage, so it had right. a, he didn't talk about the first marriage. You've got a bit of stats on prostate cancer, haven't you? Dr. Sue, I have felt I had to do some homework. <laughs> <But> <laughs> Good I, on you, Benny. <laughs> I can tell you that according to statistics that I have encountered just this week, approximately 13% of all male over the, the age of 60, say, mm. will develop prostate cancer. It's very rare in people under 60. In fact, under 40, it's extremely rare, like Mm. 0.001%. But 13% of males, they tell me, will contract prostate cancer. And just to add to that, 2% to 3% of males will die from prostate cancer. Mm. Can be very slow, one of the slower growing cancers. But it's interesting, those statistics, because it's roughly uh, comparable to the incidence of breast cancer in women. And yet, when you think about all the publicity in that, that uh, breast cancer attracts, and yet you don't hear a lot about prostate cancer, unless it's somebody in your family or somebody you know who's been affected by it. And Dr. Mm. Sue, do you agree with me that this would largely be because men don't normally like to speak about health issues? Absolutely. And I think that also goes back to the fact that usually most women have had a relationship with their medical practitioner. They've had children and they've had those women's problems. They might have had antenatal care, postnatal care. So they've had opportunities and perhaps they've been homebound and they haven't gone out to work, less uh, likely these days, of course. But men haven't had those opportunities to engage or connect with the medical world, if you like. Or haven't wanted to. Haven't wanted to, yes. If we think back to the early 20th century where it was that strong man and, you know, we just get on with things we don't. Although there were elements of strong women who did that too, if you think of the early farming families and that kind of thing. But it's like the 80% men, Mm. 20% women balance, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. However, 
Mm. Let's uh, return to David's story. Yes, you're with Bernie and Dr. Sue, and we're discussing David's experience of sexual desire in the context of prostate cancer. Some months later, when David was next interviewed, he reported that the prostate cancer that he had been treated for had returned. The problem is the prostate. The cancer has come back. The PSA has jumped back to 7.5. I have to have another blood test, and if the second blood test has jumped The treatment is hormone therapy or castration or death. If it's hormones, it's female hormones so I can stop shaving. That's the sort of thing that does happen. It depends on the strength of the hormones or straight out physical castration. We haven't decided yet if it's castration. Well, either way, it'll save my life, but it depends which is the better way. He might say to me, if it's hormones, females live longer than males. I have to wait for him to tell me these things, but... That's the situation that I'm in. Yeah, and Bernie, that comes back to what you were saying before, that we haven't decided yet. That was a joint decision and not his decision alone. So I thought that was quite nice that they've they had that shared experience. Like I said, it was almost like they were going through the journey together. Yeah, I think his sense of humour comes through there, talked about not having to shave and maybe living longer because he was, in essence, have some female characteristics. And my recollection from interviewing him was that things could be quite dark and dire for him, but the sense of humour always came through. Well, he did refer <laughs> to his body as a condemned building, yes. which... Uh, I thought yeah. it was you know, quite amusing, but yeah, and obviously David felt comfortable to talk about those problems yes. at home and within his very close social circle Yeah, and yeah. looking for some measure of social support through this ordeal too. Yes, that's right, and I think that is so important. Dr. Sue, is this a good time to maybe give an indication of what the warning signs of prostate would Yes, be? Bernie, I think that's an excellent idea and that's a little bit of the research you've also done. Yeah, well, yeah. I started getting interested from my own point of view. I'm like everybody else. I'm not always looking Google up on medical issues. But Do you have regular PSA blood tests? I have had blood tests. Mm-hmm. I know what I've done with Looking forward to uh, prostate, I've had a couple of tests. Mm -hmm. But yes, I I don't remember if that was the anagram that they gave me, but I do remember one doctor giving me a particular test, which frankly was fairly invasive. Yes, and that reminds me of an old joke, which may be a little bit in poor taste here, but listeners, if you hold up one finger, that's where you go to the doctor. If you need a second opinion, then you hold up a second finger. So there you go. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Dr. Sue? Let me inform you right Mm. now of six warning signs of incipient prostate cancer. Sure. Most importantly, a frequent need to urinate. And secondly, a difficulty in urination that might be urgency or it might be inability to have a free-flowing pee. Mm. Thirdly, interrupted flow. Fourthly, painful urination or a burning sensation. Fifth indication or warning sign is erectile dysfunction. Mm. And finally, the sixth warning sign is a decrease in the amount of ejaculant during sex. Mm. Okay, so all of those things, yeah, you'd think if you noticed any of those, and you would notice them, mm. that there'd be a problem. But if there were more than one of those warning signs, yes. then you'd just go and see the doctor straight yes. away. And we might come back to those too towards the end, Bernie, just to reiterate 
Yep. Because it is important to know those things. I think, though, one of the other things to be aware of is they can mimic an enlarged prostate. So either way, though, if you have any of those signs or symptoms, then you still need to Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that Mm. because the two things are not necessarily the same. No, that's right. And a large prostate doesn't necessarily lead into prostate cancer. The other thing I think that men need to be aware of is if there's a family history. Of course. Yes. Apparently, if you're a man and your father has had prostate cancer, then you have a more likely chance of contracting that. Mm. But if your brother has prostate cancer, then your chance is greater again. Yes, and I think for people in that situation, they like to start doing PSA testing around 40. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's sensible. Mm, That's right. So it doesn't really matter what age you are. If you have any of those warning signs, just mention it to your doc Mm. when you go in for a checkup. Sure. Or even just go for the checkup. As you identified earlier, half the problem is that men don't even go. Or they might not even go. Guilty. (laughs) Yes. So it's getting them there in the first place, isn't it? But being aware of and knowing what the signs are and that something's amiss should trigger a person to go and seek medical help. Back to David. Yes. Now, David was reliant on his doctor to guide him toward the best treatment for him, but he was also fortunate to have a loving wife with whom he could discuss his feelings, as we've been talking about. David's jocular reference to his body as a condemned building, which Bernie identified just before, confirmed that he could also discuss his health and sexual function within his social circle. So David obviously felt comfortable to talk about his problems with his close social circle, no doubt resulting in some measure of social support throughout his ordeal. So yes, as you already mentioned, he was fortunate to have a social circle where he could not only discuss, and we're just making an assumption here, but he could rely on some social support. But it would seem likely, wouldn't it, do you think? I think. And David also indicated that there were no barriers to discussing his sexuality with his doctor. And he'd actively initiated a medical investigation when he became aware of the sexual changes that he was experiencing. That seemed to be the trigger for him, really, the sexual dysfunction to start with, which was the last on your list, I think, before. Yeah, not that they were prioritised, but I think the key point here is being aware of all of the symptoms, not just the urinary issues. True. Yes. Throughout his interview, David referred to sexual desire as a mental thing. Instead of indicating his genital area when discussing loss of desire, David tapped his head, emphasising the locus of control of sexual desire within the psychological realm of his body rather than in the functional areas. Yes, so it would seem that it's important the brain is where it's all happening. Dr. Sue, please allow me to educate you. (laughs) I have to tell you that the most important sexual organ in the human body is not down there. (laughs) It's the brain. That's right, It's not what's between your legs. It's between (laughs) what's between your ears. Yeah, I wonder if realised that though. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we probably come to that realisation in the end, yeah. Yes. So, Bernie, in essence, how would you sum up David's story? What did David's story mean for you? Well, at the age of 72, David had to come to terms with his condition. His condition was indicative of the approach of the end of his life. It's going to happen to everybody. We're all human. We're all mammals. But uh, we have mm. to do it. We've got to do it. David was prepared to do it. He, he discussed it. He gave himself every indication of how to handle the last phase of his life. Mm. And quite frankly, I know it's quite some time since you interviewed him, 
and probably that life has come to an end. So I guess for me, some of the key themes there were, of course, we've talked about that connectedness with his wife and that sharing their story together, their their life story. I also felt that shortly after he realised that there was an issue with his body, he sought medical treatment rather than waiting. A lot of men wait, or I shouldn't generalise, but some people do wait until it's too late. And then the treatment options are very limited compared to what was was available initially for David. That's also true. The sooner that action can be taken, we all want to have a long and healthy life. Mm. I'm generalising. Some people don't want that, but the majority of us certainly do. And we should pursue that if that's what we want. Mm. So I'm glad that David was prepared to do that. And Bernie, can we revisit those signs and symptoms? Sure. The warning signs of prostate cancer, firstly, a frequent need to urinate, and these are not in priority. These are just six signs, no particular importance attached to them. Secondly, a difficulty in urinating. Thirdly, interrupted flow. Fourthly, painful urination. Uh, Fifth is erectile dysfunction. And sixth is a decrease in the amount of ejaculant. And, Dr. Sue... Would you like a little bit more information about how to keep a little more healthy? How yes, to prevent absolutely. this? Yes. All right, because it's basic. It's very basic to stay healthy regarding the future of your prostate, gentlemen. You should eat well. And what this means is avoid processed meats, limit your fatty intake, which is, say, red meats, go for fruit and vegetables. Five servings of fruit and veg per day is a very good recipe. Medical examinations are important. You've got to have a couple every year anyway. You should anyway. You should have a couple every year. And to make a list before you go to the doctors and mm. say, I better talk to about this, about that, about so-and-so. The other important thing, along with diet and a regular checkup, is exercise. Even if it's going for a walk with or without a dog, mm. doesn't make any difference. You know, you can go for a game of golf once in a while. If you if you play it, you can take the boat out and go fishing if you've got one and have a bit of fun that way. Or you can go down and barrack for your favourite football team and <laughs> try to catch the ball when it comes over the sideline. <laughs> Some people do that. Mm. But these are all important things and they're just mm. sort of natural. They're what yeah. we should be doing anyway Common if we sense. do want to pursue that long and healthy life. Common sense types of Common things. Common sense. Yes. I did work in prostate cancer research for the Cancer Council at one stage in my past career. At that time, I think there's more written about it now, but at that time we were encouraging the men in our studies to drink more orange or red drinks. Oh, you know, like, go on. Yeah, cranberry juice. And to this day, I still cook with more, not that I'm a man, but of course cooking for a man as well, cook with turmeric, which is orange. Oh, so okay. the orange and red, I can't say there's a research basis for this, but orange and red foods and drinks are not a bad thing either. Thank you for that. <laughs> okay. So in relation to David's story, I did feel that the togetherness of the couple through their life-threatening trials and tribulations provided a compelling narrative account of that shared life and love and of desire for each other, whether it was sexual or otherwise. And as we were talking informally before our podcast session, it's not always about the physical act of sex. It's about all of those other things. And so you've been listening to Dr. Sue and Bernie O'Brien, and we've been talking about sexual desire in older age. The focus this week was on David's story. We'll continue with our series on sexual health for seniors in our next podcast. 